I think is pretty clear. I mean, why am I being in court being cross-examined by lawyers uh, for saying that there's only two sexes if this isn't a big thing? In the hey, everybody. I'm Brad Palumbo, and welcome back to the Damage Control Podcast, where we are reclaiming the LGBT community from the insane leftists who've taken it over. My guest today is Colin Wright, an evolutionary biologist and PhD who's faced cancellation and professional backlash for pushing back against extreme activists who want to pretend that biological sex doesn't exist. I chat with him and then, as always, react to some insane LGBT TikToks, this time coming from LGBT teachers specifically, who are doing some things in the classroom that uh, I'm not a huge fan of. If you're new here, consider subscribing and joining this community. We're growing really fast and like and comment and let me know what you think of the episode as we go along. Now, let's get into it. Colin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for the invite. I've appreciated your work, so I'm I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, you might actually be the first straight person to appear on this <laughs> podcast. So, uh, it, the Damage Control podcast is dedicated to reclaiming the LGBT debate from the Looney Tunes on either extreme. And so most of my guests so far have been from within the LGBT community, uh, but you might be our first token straight, though your work is obviously very relevant to yeah. this to this topic. Well, I've I've written for queer majority before, so maybe that <laughs> gives me some. Is that some allowed? Credentials. Are you allowed to write for them if you're if you're uh, a, a straight? I wasn't sure, but they they wanted me to put some things in there about bisexuality and how gender ideology sort of undermines that because I guess they're funded by the the Bi Foundation or something. So, yeah, but it was a great, I had a really good experience with them and I like a lot of their stuff. They're sort of doing a similar thing, trying to push back against a lot of stuff from sort of the LGB uh, side of uh, the uh, acronym. Right. Well, your original background is in academia. And uh, for listeners, you graduated with a PhD in evolutionary biology from UC Santa Barbara in 2018. Then you took a postdoctoral position at Penn State. Now, from what I can see, you spoke out and waded into these issues, these thorny gender and sex debate questions, for the first time around 2018. I'm wondering, why did you decide to speak out then, and what were the main things you were sounding the alarm about? So I chose to speak out then. Um, it was actually a culmination of several years of me feeling um, like academia just sort of shifted beneath my feet and changed and morphed into something that was no longer what it was when I first started pursuing my career in academia. You know, I wanted to be a, a scientist since I was a young young kid. Uh, I was always interested in, in science. I thought I might get into astronomy, but then I got turned into, you know, my, my love for biology and evolution grew. I was big fans of like Richard Dawkins and Stephen Jay Gould. Um, and I wanted to to learn more about evolution, I wanted to get into these because this is sort of an area, well, at least I thought academia was the place where we could talk about uh, sort of intellectual ideas and uh, be for what's true. And I had previously written a lot about, you know, intelligent design and creationism. I was very outspoken against those movements and sort of debunking pseudoscience. In those realms, I had a personal blog back in the day. I was part of like the new atheist movement. Um, and academia was really great on that side. There were a lot of people within the academy that were pushing back against these pseudoscientific ideas. And so that's what I did. And then when I saw sort of this equal amount of pseudoscience, or I wouldn't even probably say it's it's greater because it's denying a more fundamental aspect of our, our biology, which is males and females, uh, I noticed that when I was pushing back against these ideas, I wasn't getting the same response <laughs> as I was when, you know, I was pushing back against things like creationism and intelligent design. I wasn't being given arguments back. I was just being called uh, a bigoted transphobe or I'm using talking points, you know, far right talking points. And I was just trying to outline the biology because I saw very clearly like some mistakes they were making. And I just entered this debate because people were wrong about biology. I had no idea. I wasn't even interested in the sports thing. I didn't know about you know, child medical transitioning, all that stuff. All this came later once I sort of looked under the hood and was just like, well, what is fueling these ideologies? Because they clearly don't want to have the academic conversation. And then once you look under the hood, you see that it's just got so much momentum from this political movement, this sort of a radical ideological side to it that I, I was just completely blindsided by it. So 
um, you know, mix that with sort of DEI policies in universities. I was being required to, uh, you know, write these diversity, equity, and inclusion statements, explain how my research as a spider and insect biologist contributes to DEI. You know, I was I was just curious. What? Exactly. You had to, it wasn't so much that you talk about how you're, your life experience with DEI or how you're going to further it in your career. But you, I had to specifically for several jobs explain how my research furthers DEI when I, I studied social insect personalities. And so, so wait, is the underlying assumption there that you can't do any research unless it's going to in some way advance DEI? Yes, exactly. You need to have some sort of DEI component. Now this wasn't for every job applicant, but it was on at least all the ones that I applied for in California, and that's like the whole UC system. These are really great universities. So I was just kind of becoming, um, you know, I guess uh, disenchanted with academia. And there was a sort of a cancellation attempt that happened too once I got some articles about this in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and so I ended up leaving academia on my own. I wasn't actually like fired or anything from a job. Um, they had just tried to ruin my reputation to a degree where I thought that... Um, it would make my life very difficult if I tried to maintain a position in academia, you know, as an untenured postdoc seeking tenure positions. It was just going to be a, a complete nightmare um, trying to maintain, you know, that professional side while speaking out about these political hot button issues that shouldn't be political, but have become political. Yeah, let's talk about that, because I know whenever you're inside an institution that's been captured by left wing ideology, I know. I went to an extremely far left undergraduate university, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and I worked at uh, the student newspaper. It was completely run by hardcore ideological progressives. And I was working in this institution and I encountered some of these same roadblocks. And also one of the, the very telling signs is when they respond to criticism or ideas, not with debate, but with no platforming or ad hominem or ad hominem in the form of, oh, that's bigoted X, Y, Z, not like that's wrong because of X, Y, and Z. And there's not that in, in desire to engage. So when I was reading up on your backstory, I mean, it seems like there was a, I, I'm, I'm glad you weren't fired from, from the university and from your postdoc position, uh, but it does seem like there was an attempt at least to cancel you or to uh, incur professional consequences for your decision to speak out on these subjects. And the funny thing is like, it's not like you were really even saying anything particularly radical outside of the academy, really. I mean, your takes are, are pretty centrist, pretty mainstream. Um, but yeah, talk a little bit about that, that, that attempt to professionally sabotage you because of your speech. It was really intense. Um, and strangely more intense than, than it is now, even though my Twitter following has, you know, completely exploded since then. Um, and this is because they saw that I was at a vulnerable position in my career. I was a postdoc. I had no tenure. My contract was set to expire in several months. I was searching for jobs. And so they knew that if they put the pressure on and tried to destroy my reputation, my, uh, you know, my, my credibility or something or portray me as a bigot, that they could probably do a really good job. This is also this was in 2020, too, when I was going through this. This was post George Floyd. This is when, you know, everyone is, is super sensitive and there's DEI hirings going everywhere. And so they tried to say, you know, if I'm this bigoted transphobe and, oh, don't you know, like the sex binary is also rooted in racism and this person, he, this is spreading now white supremacist ideas. They had, that's what they were literally trying to argue. Um, you know, it was, it was just a court press to try to just ruin my reputation as much as possible. So this took many forms. Um, there was just an online sort of Twitter harassment campaign, just tagging in my university and all the DEI orgs in my field of evolution and ecology saying, oh, this guy's on the job market. Like, this isn't how you diversify, you know, evolutionary biology. Um, there were people who would post uh, links or sorry, post job listings. So there was a, a job board called the Eco Evo Jobs Wiki. And it's the one where everyone in my field, if you're an ecologist, or an evolutionary biologist, or anywhere around, you know, the intersection of those two fields, uh, you look for your jo for jobs there because everybody posts every job that goes up there, whether it's uh, faculty, tenure track, postdoc, whatever. Um, and so there's during the hiring season, there's thousands of people on this every single day, uh, if not tens of thousands. 
and someone decided to upload or to create a job listing that just said, Colin Wright is a transphobic race scientist. Don't hire him. This was just sitting at the top. And I had, you know, colleagues contact me and some people, uh, you know, apparently thought this was a, a true thing. So I spoke to some universities who liked my writings and who said that they would like to potentially hire me, but that their ability to hire has been taken out of the out of their hands as a department and placed into the hands of sort of the 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 HR DEI committees where they get to look, do a first filter through all the applications before they hand those successful ones uh, after the filter on to the department for them to choose like the candidate among those selected. So, yeah, so th this was, you know, I think they probably did a good job of tarnishing my reputation because some of these universities said that I, I wasn't going to pass the HR filter um, and it was, it was completely out of their hands. So that was a lot of it. Um, yeah, it was it was really intense for a for a for a little while there, and then there was also, you know, on t insult to injury, uh, my advisor had got caught up with some uh, fraudulent data issues. Now this was never put on me or anything like that, and the whole scientific community in our field was uh, very sympathetic to the fact that we were equally victimized by his fraudulent activities as you know other people that he had. Uh, that he had worked with. So that wasn't really a reason for, you know, reputationally wise. But then, of course, people online are trying to say, oh, this person's advisor had been caught up in there. Therefore, he must have been, you know, manipulating data as well. So it was just a complete cluster F. <laughs> yeah, posting about you on job boards is quite yeah. some dedication. Like, I look, there's a lot of people whose commentary I find like distasteful or gross or ignorant, but I can't really imagine taking time out of my day to call their employers or to post to like prospective job boards and try to make sure that they never achieve any success in life. It's like a level of obsession and, and hatred with someone else that, it, I mean, it screams to me. Uh, only a damaged person would do that kind of a thing, a person who is projecting outwards their own insecurities. But let's get into, oh, one additional question. So after you left academia, kind of the work that you do now in, in scientific writing and commentary, what happened with Etsy and PayPal with you? <laughs> yeah, so uh, what was this? In, this might have been in 2022, I think is when it happened. Um so this was after I had like started a sub stack and I worked for Quillette for a little bit and I just sort of establishing myself uh, after academia. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, I got a message from PayPal that just said, uh, you have been, your, your account has been uh, deactivated for life. No reason given. I talked to somebody at the organization um, just because I thought it was just, oh, maybe I, I don't use PayPal very much. I was using it to have people, if they wanted to, to send me just one-off donations or recurring donations, they could do that because I'm not in academia. I was like canceled from from my profession. I need to, I need to get support from, from other people. Uh, and they said that, oh, you know, they'll have somebody contact me or I'll see a message through the PayPal app. And then so I was like, okay, so this seems clearly there was just some error. And then the message I received said, if I wanted to find out why my account was permanently closed for forever, I would need to get a uh, have a, an attorney submit like a, a subpoena to find this out. Now, um, Matt Taibbi contacted me and he tried to dig more and wasn't able to get past their sort of, you know, we need a court order type thing before we can give any information. Um, I probably should have pursued the subpoena, but it, it would have cost money. And um, I, at this point, it was it didn't seem worthwhile. And then. Uh, shortly after that, Etsy, where I was, um, you know, including some merchandise that was very benign. And I know that Etsy has like, these policies where if you can't put like the word turf on there, like transclusionary radical feminist. You can't uh, have any sort of any explicit sort of gender critical things on there. And so I made sure that my products were just completely benign. Like, don't mean to do like an advertisement on your thing, but like reality's last stand. That's the name of my uh, my, my sub stack. And this was pretty much the extent of it, just the name and then the male and female symbol, things like that. Like that's all that was on there. Did and, you have something about JK Rowling? Um, no, I didn't have any JK Rowling because her stuff had gotten banned before in other people's, uh, stores. Oh, okay. So I made sure not to even go near that stuff. 
And so I was I was kicked off and they said for vaguely for like inciting violence against minorities or something like that. Uh, violence and hatred against protected just lunacy. Groups. Yeah. And it's when, just so funny to me because yeah. on the spectrum of these issues, right, like there are people who are genuinely very anti-trans and vitriolic with how they discuss these issues. But that's really not you. I've followed you for years now and you have this kind of like centrist, critical and also kind of academic tone and approach. And so the idea that you're inciting violence uh, with anyone with your Wall Street Journal op-ed about the sex binary, it's so preposterous. And it's like, more broadly, I always like to talk to guests uh, when they've about it when they've been kind of deplatformed by financial services, because I find that very disturbing. I mean, social media censorship is one thing. I'm someone who believes these platforms like YouTube has the right to ban me tomorrow if they really want to. I have no right to be on their platform. But like banking and financial services, that's very Orwellian to me. Like, do we really want financial institutions serving as thought police and deciding which people are too problematic to like conduct basic finance? I mean, the end game there is something very disturbing where they basically weaponize your ability to exist in real life. Uh, when we are also reliant on these services to prevent people from ever speaking out or saying anything remotely controversial. Yeah, I mean, that's that's my view exactly on these, because when I'm picking a financial institution, the one thing that you want in a financial institution is like stability, <laughs> something that's going to be a kind of a rock against all the waves, because that's that's your livelihood. Uh, so when I got kicked off of PayPal, I moved over to DonorBox because it uses Stripe. And Stripe has been very uh, supportive of free speech or they they don't have like a hate speech policy or something. Not that I would even qualified for the PayPal hate speech policy, but uh, it's beside the point. And then, of course, since I moved over to DonorBox, my friend Billboard Chris moved over to DonorBox. Gays Against Groomers, they were kicked off PayPal too. They moved over to DonorBox. And then Media Matters comes out with a big hit piece highlighting all of us saying that like anti-trans bigots all fled to DonorBox, trying to get DonorBox to to drop us all too. And so like, even though, you know, I, I don't have like a boss. And so in a way I feel like uh, I'm uncancelable in that sense where like, I don't report to anybody, but then at the same time, I'm extra vulnerable because I do rely on just a few uh, financial um, platforms. Like well, previously PayPal no longer, but like Stripe, for instance, if if I got kicked off a of Stripe, I'd be totally screwed. Like I make most of my money through my my Substack. That's like the majority of my income, and that requires me to have an active Stripe account. Um, and while they're good now, like what if they get bought out by somebody else and they get a whole new super woke you know team of of CEOs and advisors? I could be kicked off with a just a flip of a switch. So uh, in a way, I feel more vulnerable now. Um, I'm not cancelable in some sense, but in another way, I'm like extremely cancelable. Like if we just one one mouse click away from it, I suppose. So yeah, it's it's kind of horrifying to be in, in this yeah, space. Yeah, it is. Um, but I, let's dive into the actual, actual substance of your views a little huh. bit. To the what real, exactly the real bigotry. You, uh, yeah, yeah. Tell <laughs> me, tell me the most steel man version of what is it about you that's so controversial that you believe or advocate for? Well, I push back against these popular narratives now that sex is a spectrum or that there are more than two sexes, that sex is mutable, um, and that, you know, if you by just changing a few body parts, you can sort of move yourself along the sex spectrum and literally change your sex. Or that sex isn't a thing at all. So there's several claims being made. It's either there's there's sex as a spectrum. Everyone falls on some level of the spectrum. Uh, there's more than two sexes, uh, or that sex is a complete social construct, and you know, you're wherever you draw a line is just as good as anybody else's place to draw a line, or or because a line, a very very super clear, one hundred percent accurate line can't be drawn. Therefore, uh, you know, anywhere you draw the line is equally as good as the next. So I'm just pushing back against those ideas, saying no. Actually, we know what sexes are. Um, just because some people might have some degree of sexual ambiguity doesn't mean that the sexes aren't real. Um, I've tried to use analogies like coin flips, like, you know, heads and tails, they come, they, they don't come in degrees, but, you know, sometimes a coin will land on its edge and, you know, maybe, and that's not a definable face on, of the coin. 
uh, things like that. Just things that we all kind of know that males and females are real. We know how they're defined. Um, and it's just not true that sex is a spectrum. And I, I pushed back against them, not just because like, oh, some people are wrong. Um, initially, that was sort of the reason. But really now it's because there's there's a lot of actionable things that flow from that. You know, the whole premise of putting males in female sports is based on this idea that like, well, where are you going to draw the line? Just because, you know, there's some people who are intersex out there. Therefore, uh, you know, we can't define what males or females are. So the categories are meaningless. Therefore, someone like Leah Thomas, who isn't intersex, now can compete um, in the female category. Or then like gender affirming care, for instance, which tells kids that, oh, they can have a brain sex that doesn't match their physical sex. And that we can then modify certain aspects of their body to bring their physical sex more in line with their brain sex, you know, to resolve their dysphoria uh, type of thing. So there's there's real consequences that flow from sort of these fundamental ideas. Um, and I'm just trying to get people to to be clear on what the biology is, just so we can make sure that anything that we decide to do from there uh, is rooted in, in actual clear biology and clear science. Yeah. So look, I remember when I was in uh, at UMass, I took a gender studies course because I wanted to see <laughs> what was up. And the professor who I, I think is a they, them, but whatever, like just to give you a taste, right, of what this was like, um, I was one of the only men in the class and it was very much kind of an activist crowd in there. But I wanted to see what what all the fuss was about, right? What they had to say on different things. And I'll never forget the moment where uh, they were talking about uh, the, the professor was arguing that the differences between men and women in sports are exclusively because of a lack of investment. Like women's sports gets less funding and less attention and less training. And women are encouraged to, you know, uh, drop out of sports sooner and other things. And I think some of that might be true, but it's it's obviously not the whole difference, like a huge part of its biology. Uh, and so I said, I, I'm, I suggested that the reason could be biology. The differences between the two sexes could be a large part of the the reason that the men's world records are so much faster than the women's <laughs> world records in different races and lifting uh, uh, records and that kind of thing. And like a hush went over the room. You just and she you and, stepped and in so a minefield. You didn't even know who was this there. professor. To my professor's credit, was like. It's okay, guys. We're here to have the tough conversations, and I, <laughs> which, in a way, I give I give this professor props because you know she didn't uh, like sh silence me or shut down and the conversation. I don't do they them. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, that the fact that that was actually considered like extreme or something is so insane. Yeah. But so what I would like you to do, to do, Colin, is is for, I have some normal people, normies who follow me who, you know, they're not on Twitter. They don't read like scientific publications. And so the idea that anyone disputes the sex binary might even seem like a straw man to them. Like, is there is that really something people don't acknowledge? Is that really something people dispute? Uh, what do you think is is like, how would you just quickly kind of Prove to them that that actually is a thing that you have had to fight against. Well, you can just go to the scientific literature. There's an article in Nature, the most prestigious journal in the entire world, called Sex Redefined. Biologists now think that sex is uh, more complex than just male or female. There's New York Times pieces by Anne Fausto Sterling called Why Sex is Not Binary. She's the same woman who came up with the idea that there's five sexes, and she's published these in academic journals. There's papers in the integrative and uh, uh, comparative biology that came out this year talking about breaking binaries and sex and how uh, breaking apart the sex binary leads to a greater understanding of, of, of ecology, which it definitely does not. Um, there's two articles in Hormones and Behavior that came out this year that explicitly talk about breaking binaries and you know, looking to uh, have a multivariate view of sex. Um, and then just countless articles in Scientific American talking about why human sex is not binary by Augustin Fuentes, um, how penises are social construct. These are literally articles that are in Scientific American. There's dozens of them. You just need to, to Google them. They're out there. I mean, I've written responses to many of these pieces uh, because it's kind of what I do now. <laughs> and so... 
um, it's it's out there. It's everywhere. It's in textbooks. I've had people write articles for my Substack about how Campbell Biology, probably the most popular sci- uh, biology textbook in the world, um, how between 2015 and 2020 they've changed for uh, changed the wording around sex uh, to now sort of being the spectrum and constellation of of traits, that type of thing. Um, and then I've been called into court to act as an expert witness. Um, and been cross-examined by ACLU lawyers trying to tell me that sex isn't binary and and trying to take apart my arguments. So I think it's pretty clear. I mean, why am I being in court being cross-examined by lawyers uh, for saying that there's only two sexes if this isn't a big thing and that, and, and, and that a lot doesn't hinge on whether this is true or not? So uh, it's it's a big issue. It's out there. Um it's not hard to find if you just spend a couple of minutes on, on Google. So in a word or not a word, but like briefly put, what is sex? So there's multiple meanings. <laughs> so you can talk about sex as like a, an act, you know, it's the, uh, if you talk about sexual reproduction, um, it's the fusion of, uh, uh, two gametes to create a new, a new individual based on the genetics from the, the mother and father. So that's what sort of sexual reproduction is. That's what sex is. But if we're talking about, you know, what sex is an individual, uh, we're talking about whether they're male or female. And male and female refer to two different uh, evolved reproductive strategies. Uh, The male strategy is one that's involved in creating many small gametes, which we call sperm. And a female is an individual who uh, has the strategy of producing fewer larger immobile gametes that we call eggs. So that is the definitive difference between males and females. It's how we define what a male and a female is, uh, is based on their type of primary reproductive anatomy, uh, based around what type of gamete it would produce. So that's, in a nutshell, what a male and a female is. Now you can have a hermaphrodite, and you might say, well, is this a third sex? Well, no, they're just an example of an individual that is both male and female because they're an individual that produces both eggs and sperm at the same time. So they're still an example of sort of harboring two sexes. You know, we say sex is binary because there are only two sexes. The sexes are composed of two things, male strategy and the female strategy. So what about, um, they'll be quick to point to the existence of intersex people. What exactly does that mean when we say intersex people and why doesn't that complicate the sex binary? So intersex people are individuals whose primary uh, sexual anatomy, uh, their their genitalia, appear ambiguous. So you can't just tell what sex they are by observing their genitals. Or they have a mismatch between sort of their internal uh, uh, reproductive anatomy, their gonads, and their external phenotypes. So you get, get some individuals who have, say, complete androgen and sensitivity syndrome, where they have internally they have testes and other male reproductive organs on the inside. But on the outside, they never developed a penis. They have what looks to be like a a normal uh, female uh, vagina, vulva. They develop breasts. They look phenotypically identical to a female, even though inside they're actually biologically male. So those are what we mean by intersex individuals. Um, And they don't sort of undermine the sex binary because an intersex person, they're sexually ambiguous to some degree. But sexual ambiguity isn't a third sex because there's not like a third type of primary reproductive anatomy, a third type of gonad that would go on to produce a third type of gamete between ova or sperm. So when people say, and this is a a source of a lot of confusion, like when biologists say sex is binary, we're not saying that every single individual who has ever existed, whoever who exists and ever will exist, can be unambiguously categorized as either male or female, full stop. That's not what we're saying. People could potentially be sexually ambiguous, and there's no problem with that. What people say when they mean sex is binary, what biologists mean is there's only two sexes. You know, there's two different ways you can define binary. One is sort of the binary code, like computer programming, where the world only exists of zeros and ones. And then there's the other sort of binary definition, which is uh, composed of two parts, like a binary star system or a binary compound. Um, and 
sex in humans, there are only males and female sexes just because there is no third gamete that would be necessary to have a third sex in existence. Um, so I hope that is, is somewhat clarifying. I've been actually trying to move away somewhat from saying sex is binary because people really pounce on the binary thing and they just think binary, you know, computer code. So rather I like to say there are only two sexes. I think that might be a little clearer for some people and that sex ambiguity yeah. isn't a third sex. That makes, no, it, it makes total sense to me, but I'm, I'm not the audience uh, that yeah. needs convincing yeah. on if, this. If I can make it even like a, just really quick, even if sure. half of the population had intersex conditions, it still wouldn't negate the fact that there are only two sexes. The, the do, prevalence of intersex conditions, because you get activists always trying to say, oh, it's 1%, it's 2%, it's whatever. They try to inflate the number because they think that that, if we can just raise the percentage of intersex people in the population, uh, that that would somehow be more undermining of the sex binary. But the prevalence of intersex has nothing to do with whether a sex binary, because again, sexual ambiguity isn't a third sex. There would still only be two sexes even if 99% of people had ambiguous genitalia. So shifting gears a little bit, what do you make of, at least when I was first introduced to trans concepts, the and I think they've unfortunately kind of moved away from this and, and really do deny sex in many cases, but I was originally presented with the notion that sex and gender are different things. Sex is your biology. It is your like your gametes, your sex organs, your DNA, like everything you're discussing. But your gender is your internal sense of self. It is the social things that you identify with that are attached to uh, sex traditionally, but they're saying it's gender. Do you accept or uh, have you ever accepted that, that, that distinction between sex and gender? I did. And I remember being presented with that exact thing in, in the early 2010s, I think is when it was, when I was asked to say, you know, sex is one thing, gender is another thing, gender is about identity, sex is about biology. And I was, at the time, very happy to, to take that compromise because as a biologist or someone like at, at the time who was studying biology, was just like, okay, as long as we have this wall between identity and biology, I can compromise on that to some degree. We can say, okay, this is a male, but they identify as a woman, like, okay. Uh, even though looking back, it's a little naive because what does it mean to identify as a woman? It's usually just based on these stereotypes and it can be, it, it devolves into very gross, uh, sexist stereotypes very, very quickly, uh, when you start going down that, that road. Um, so nowadays I, I don't really accept that framing. Um, I don't know what people mean when they say gender anymore. There's so many different ways people define it. So I usually just talk about sex. And then when people talk about gender, I just ask them, like, well, what do you mean when you say gender? Um, because if they're talking about sort of the social roles and expectations that are placed on individuals uh, because of their perceived sex, okay, that, I think that's an interesting concept. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's can be used in some sort of analysis. Um, I've certainly known, you know, boys who behaved, you know, uh, somewhat feminine and they were teased and bullied because of that and, you know, because of their they weren't gender conforming, uh, so to speak. Um, if we're talking about gender identity is uh, sort of this, this internal feeling of being male and female, like maybe some people feel that. I'm a little less comfortable using that because it's we're entering the realm of pure subjectivity at this point. Um, but I usually just ask people what they mean because I don't want to presume that I know what that I'm using gender the same way they're using it uh, because we then we're just talking past each other. We're debating semantics rather than concepts. Um, but I, I do stand firm on concepts like male and female and what sex is. That's sort of something that I'm, I, I'm staking my, uh, I, I'm not going to budge on because that, that needs to remain solid because this actually refers to fundamental biological features that exist, whether anyone believes in them or not. So, well, and maybe you can expound on that a little bit, like why this matters, because it might kind of seem like, all right, you're hung up on this scientific, this like niche scientific debate, but it's really not niche and it really has ramifications for a lot of things. So maybe you could just explain like why this actually matters. Yeah. So if you think about just like a really practical matter, um, sports, for instance, why do we have like, what is the normative reason for having 
separate categories for men and women. Well, that's because we have defined historically men and women as one being primarily based on their sex and their age. You know, a, a, a woman is an adult human female, a man is an adult human male. This is, uh, we have separate sporting categories because of real physical differences that everyone understands, or at least used to understand, uh, that exist between males and females as a result mainly of going males going through male puberty, where you get bigger, faster, stronger, uh, in almost every single axis of, of physical development. Um, and then so when you... If we know so, if we were to have a good separation between sex and gender there, then you you still wouldn't get males and female sports because we would say, oh well, this is you know the this is a league for males, this is the one for females. But it's only when you start sort of trying to blur the boundary between sex and gender is when you get like Leah Thomas competing in female sports. Um, you know, d just if it was if if they weren't denying biology, you wouldn't get Leah Thomas. You wouldn't get males and female sports. Uh, you wouldn't get males who are going in women's restrooms, that types of thing. Um, so th there is sort of a bait and switch that is happening there. It's, you know, we're supposed to keep this line between sex and gender. As soon as we say, okay, that's an equal compromise. Then the next step is like, well, sex and gender, they're both on a spectrum. They're both kind of social constructs. Who really knows? Uh, and intersex people exist. Therefore, um, males and female sports, because what is a male anyway? <laughs> and the, the thing that angers me about that sort of line of reasoning is like, I think it's just like a social, it's a philosophical issue of whether you think males and females should have separate sporting categories. So that's a debate that society can have of whether the categories in sports should exist. That but won't end well for the feminists if yeah, we get yeah, rid of that. Yeah. But, but, if, <laughs> but if your reason for like abolishing the categories is because males and females aren't even real natural categories, then that's completely BS. Um, but if someone were to say, oh, I just don't think they should exist because everyone should compete on the same playing field, like that's a position you can hold. It's one I disagree with, but, um, you know, there's nothing like biology denying about that position. I'll just, just tell you as wrong. a soccer player, if the U S national team combined <laughs> into one team, zero women would yeah, make exactly. it. Yeah. Yeah. And even though the women are relative to their gender, much better than the men relative to their yeah. gender. Yeah. Yet, on raw strength and athleticism and speed and reflexes, it, it would be no contest. I mean, the U.S. women's national team, which is an excellent women's team, they lost to a U15 boys team in a scrimmage. I think it was five goals to two. Good. Like, come on, man. Yeah. Come I mean, on. <laughs> yeah, if, if you were to get rid of the WNBA, you wouldn't suddenly get women in the NBA. The NBA would remain unchanged and there would just be no WNBA. That's because right now the NBA does not have, it's not the MNBA, it's not the Male Basketball Association. There's no rule that says women can't play in the NBA. It's just that no woman has ever been able to, uh, you know, try out for and compete at that level. So uh, any scout in the NBA would, would love to recruit a woman who could shoot like Steph Curry or, you know, <laughs> go in the paint like Shaq. Like they, there's, they're not discriminating against women in the NBA. It's just, they just don't have uh, the physical capability to do it. So what is your perspective on the non-binary phenomenon? <laughs> so I think non-binary in a way, it's kind of a gift because it shows the idea, the pure ideological nature of what gender ideology is, because people try to deny that there's like this ideological component that they try to deny that they're defining what men and women are uh, by social stereotypes of ma masculinity and femininity. Um, because when you get down to it, what they view as the gender binary, which is different from the sex binary, they think the gender binary are the sort of social roles and expectations that are placed on individuals by their perceived sex. And they think that there's just two of those, which we can call, you know, masculinity and femininity and all the traits and tropes that goes along with those just you know think like barbie and gi joe type of thing um so when someone says they're non-binary they're not saying they're intersex they're saying they they do not fall within the gender binary so they're just saying that they're sort of uh not ma maximally masculine or feminine they're just sort of androgynous which is yeah it's we all understand that that's what they're actually doing and so the, by them saying that, oh, I'm non-binary, call me they, them, uh, it really shows that 
they are basing their entire ideology on stereotypes um, because, you know, that's that's how you get the they, thems. That's how you get, uh, uh, you know, that, that non-binary identity. That's what it means to be non-binary is to be non-totally masculine or feminine. But we, uh, just to, to give the, the devil their due, right? Like those stereotypes do exist. We do attach a lot of things to masculinity that aren't actually inherent to being biologically male, right? Oh, yeah. And we do attach as a society a lot of things to uh, femininity or being a woman that aren't actually inherent to um, being biologically female and producing eggs, right? Like dresses, for example, like, like the fact that dresses are women's clothes and uh, not men's clothes is is a product of culture and society and time and has been different in other cultures and other societies and other times so it's like it's not that these stereotypes don't exist at at all is it oh no i totally you know the stereotypes definitely exist and there is social forces out there that do try to sort of whip people into shape and then uh uh conform to these sort of norms and expectations um and that's something is coming from you know i've on the left, a very, you know, traditional liberal, uh, my all view on this has always been, you know, treat people as individuals. Like a woman is still a woman, even if they're not wearing dresses, um, a, a males, you know, males can be feminine and it doesn't cease to be male. Um, you know, just to expand what it means to be a man or a woman, they don't need to conform to these stereotypes. So for someone, for a woman to say that, well, because I don't like wearing dresses, I prefer jeans. Therefore, I'm no longer a woman. I'm I'm non-binary instead. To me, that's just saying that, like, well, anyone who identifies as a woman is therefore identifying with feminine stereotypes, um, and that to me that is just a very sexist definition. It's sort of, you know, you in order to be a woman, you have to conform to sexual stereotypes, and if you don't conform, well, then you're non-binary. You know, this this reveals to me. The, the the ideology of the core of, of gender ideology, which is, I think, really best summed up in a, there's like this three-line um, meme that I saw. And it said, like, I think the first one said, uh, it was sexism. And it said, women must do the dishes. And then it said equality was men and women can do the dishes. And then gender ideology is whoever's doing the dishes is a woman. <laughs> and to me, that just like really encapsulates what gender ideology does and how it's really separated away from the sort of liberal equal uh, view that I, I held and I thought is what society was aiming towards. It's instead reified those roles and just unlinked sex from it. So now if you're a, a man who's just very feminine, likes to wear a dress, now you're a woman. And if you're a woman who wears jeans and, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, this masculine clothing, now you're either non-binary or a man. Uh, it's it's just yeah, it's reified those stereotypes. So that's that's where I push back against the whole thing. Like women are can be feminine yeah. or masculine. Like men can be feminine or masculine. I've always just the, so I saw a video the other day of this uh, TikToker who is an extremely effeminate male, uh, presumably gay, though I don't actually know that. But he has like these long nails, and he was doing a non-binary linguistics lesson. And he was saying, well, instead of ladies and uh, gentlemen say goblins and ghoulies or like just like silly alternative. It was all met in jet. But he had this like very boisterous feminine personality and he's a non-binary. They them. And I'm like, like, why can't you just be a male but be a flamboyant? Like I'm because there are some people on the right who are like, no, men need to act like men. I don't believe in any of that. Right. Like, I think that men are biologically male. We should acknowledge that. But I don't think that they need to boys shouldn't cry. And, you know, girls need to uh, be submissive to their husbands and all just all this stuff that is traditionalist. Like, I'm I'm like you, you know, I'm, I'm socially secular, moderate, not not a traditionalist or conservative on, on gender roles or any of that. But I find that those roles are ironically reinforced when he's essentially saying that in order for him to be a feminine and flamboyant as he is, he must identify as something other than a man. Why? Why? Yeah, that's that's because, I mean, what gender ideology teaches what a man and a woman is, 
is the gender binary, which are those roles and stereotypes. Like that's what they think men and women are as opposed to male and female. Um, yeah, that's, that's the gender binary. That's what you're non-binary in relation to, because again, they're not saying they're intersex. They're saying they're, they're non-binary. They don't, they don't fall within the gender binary. And they would even say that some trans people are binary trans people. So Buck Angel, for instance, is biologically female, but you know, is a trans man. So identifies with all the male stereotypes and someone like Blair White is male but is, you know, extremely feminine and identifies with all the female stereotypes. So they would say that those two individuals, Buck uh, and Blair, still fall within the gender binary because they're, they've picked a side. Uh, basically, they're not androgynous. But if you want to go androgynous, you're rejecting the sex binary. You're falling somewhere in between, um, you know, like David Bowie or something. They would say that <laughs> that is your non-binary. That's what it means to be non-binary is to be androgynous with respect to your i guess your identity and your expression and i just think it's, yeah. it's i think it's, it's regressive and sexist that's why i push back against but i do wonder how do we idea. how do we uh square this circle with the existence of legitimately transsexual people who have gender dysphoria um so you mentioned blair and buck both of whom have been on this show and both of whom i'm friend friendly with like they are biologically, you know, Buck is biologically female, or by and and Blair is biologically male. But to call to say like Blair White is a man or he him for Blair White doesn't make any sense, and is also impolite and would be upsetting. So it, it also doesn't make any sense. Like nobody in the real world would see these people and use the the pronouns that are associated with their biological sex it, it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense for them to use the bathrooms that are associated with their biological sex when their appearance and their secondary sex characteristics are so radically transformed and they do have this real existing um mental condition where their birth sex and their internal sense of self have a radical mismatch and the best way to alleviate it is to live as the opposite gender for all intents and purposes how do we square like liberal values of tolerance and acceptance for people like that living their lives how they want with this non uh, with this this idea of sex and gender that doesn't have room for you know the the gender ideology so the thing about buck and blair is they're sort of what i would call like the old school transsexuals before gender ideology came along. Like there's there's no ideology inherent in what Blair and Buck are doing. They're just, you know, adults who said they would feel more comfortable in their bodies if they took steps to uh, modify their bodies to so they would appear like the opposite sex and be perceived as the opposite sex because that would alleviate some degree of distress that they're feeling in their lives. Um, and then, you know, like I'm, I'm friends with both of them. Uh, I refer to Buck as he him I refer to Blair as she her when I'm around them you know if I was in a court maybe that would be different if, especially if it was about you know the reality of biology and I want to make sure that I'm just getting all my terms completely correctly uh, so there's no ambiguity of what I'm talking about um, in general I don't like to use uh, sort of wrong sex pronouns for for well especially for children and for people who are who I think are actually sort of diluted into the gender ideology thing um, but I do think there is there is a lot of nuance about things like bathrooms and where should they use because someone like Buck Angel, who's biologically female, I think more people would probably more women would feel more uncomfortable encountering Buck Angel in the women's room than they would Blair White in the in the exactly in the, especially exactly. Unless, unless they knew who they were you know followed them on social media I think or even something. still yeah even still yeah I would agree. Um, People like to act like the, there isn't any nuance about the bathroom debate. Um, and, you know, if we did have gender neutral bathrooms everywhere, I guess that could be just a solution saying like, OK, just both Buck and Blair use the gender neutral bathrooms. But I, I, we're not there yet. And who knows if we'll ever get to that position. Um, but, yeah, so there's there's no ideology inherent in what they're doing. And I'm, you know, like a lot of other liberals said, adults should be able to modify their bodies and move through the world how they want to. Um but that's, you know, this is, it, it stops, you know, with being, sorry, it's, it's, it's about the social aspect. It's, you know, I'll, I'll sort of treat Blair 
as I would sort of interact with a woman socially and Buck as a male socially. But then, you know, Blair White's also not trying to compete on, you know, women's sports teams, uh, right. that type of thing. And so there is sort of a responsibility to the people of like, okay, well, you you can walk through the world presenting yourself as one way, but there are limits to that. There are certain contexts where sex does matter. You know, there's in, in bathrooms, it, it matters. It, it matters. It doesn't, you know, it's not like the most uh, place where it matters the most. I think sports are probably matters more given the physical differences. Um, and then it matters also when you're giving like medical information to, to children about what sex is and whether they can change their sex. So sex should doesn't matter in most contexts, but in some contexts it matters a lot. And so in those it contexts- It also matters radically in medicine. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, for sure. So we just need to recognize the context where sex matters and to what degree it matters and the context where sex doesn't matter. And as long as we maintain that wall between your sex and how you identify and how you present yourself to the world, I really don't think there's sort of any any necessary contradictions. I think we can I think we can navigate this uh, responsibly, even though there might be some little blurry uh, cases here and there. Absolutely. Well, I think you're you're doing really interesting and thoughtful work. Uh, I will put a link to your Substack publication, Reality's Last Stand, in the show notes. Everybody should subscribe. I'm subscribed to it. I've cited it on this show before because you guys are co you're covering stories in this subgenre that other people aren't and with the perspective that is very rare. So, Colin, thanks so much for joining us on the Damage Control podcast and uh, keep up the, the good fight. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Hey, guys, Brad here cutting in to remind you that I host another podcast, a weekly political podcast called the Based Politics Podcast, where me and my co-host Hannah Cox, we break down the biggest news stories and what's trending on the Internet and give you our nonpartisan, honest opinions. If that would interest you and you want more Brad, check out the links in the description to make sure that you're also subscribed to and watching the Base Politics Podcast. But regardless, thanks for tuning in to Damage Control. All right, guys, it's time for everybody's favorite part of the podcast, where I react to some of the most unhinged LGBT TikToks and give you my perspective as a normal gay person who doesn't want to be associated with this insanity. Today, I'm taking a look at some TikToks from LGBT activist teachers who apparently think the classroom is the right place to push their political agenda. Buckle up and prepare yourself, because some of these are pretty infuriating. Up first, this kindergarten teacher says that she has students at that young age who are already identifying as non-binary. Just saying, if my five to seven year old art students can correctly use they them pronouns for their peers and accept non-binary kids without batting an eye, adults should be able to do it. So let me get this straight. This teacher is saying she has five, six and seven year olds in her classes who are identifying as non-binary and they them. That's a giant red flag. I mean, as my friend Blair White put it, a non-binary five-year-old is kind of like a vegan cat. We all know who's really making the choices. There's just no such thing as a non-binary kindergartner. That's very clearly coming from an adult in their life. Because while gender dysphoria is a real thing that organically exists in some people, even as very young children, this feeling of like a third gender or non-binary or whatever it means, it's honestly pretty incoherent and ideological, isn't something that just naturally organically emerges unless that idea is presented to a young child. Like, what does a non-binary first grader or kindergartner even mean? A six-year-old boy isn't not a boy because he doesn't want to play with G.I. Joes and wants to play with dolls instead. And in the same way, a seven-year-old girl isn't not a girl because she doesn't want to wear a dress or have long hair. That's all just sexist and reductive and we just need to let kids be kids man and i just have to honestly roll my eyes and and it made me laugh the idea that because young impressionable children with mushy undeveloped brains believe something then adults should believe and accept it too oh you mean the same kids who believe in santa claus and the tooth fairy Citing the fact that you've convinced five to seven-year-olds who would believe almost anything that a person in a position of authority told them, 
as somehow a reason adults should also be on board with your message or your movement is literally hilarious. It's just not the boost to your argument that you think it is, babe. And you should not be using your position of authority as a teacher to push such ideological and political concepts on young children. Up next, this preschool teacher tried to get preschoolers to use gender-neutral language for her, and it did not go how she expected. Okay, guys, I can't. This is too funny. So I'm at work, and those of you who don't know me, I use they-them pronouns, and I'm a preschool teacher. So instead of using Mr. or Miss, we use Mix. So the kids have been really awesome doing that. I work with three- and four-year-olds. One of my kiddos came up to me and he goes, Are you mixed up? Is, are you mixed up? I was like, no, sweetie, I'm not mixed up. I just use, I just use mix instead of Mr. or Mrs. And he's like, okay, I was worried. This one, honestly, it cracked me up because... The kids are getting confusion from this person, and I'm getting confusion too, because the concept of non-binary still makes no sense to me, let alone to preschoolers. You're just a woman who likes to wear short hair or dyed hair and androgynous or men's clothing, and that's perfectly fine. Like, I really don't believe in these gender roles or stereotypes or that men and women have to act or look a certain way, but it doesn't change your biology. And in fact, you're reinforcing gender stereotypes by declaring that not being traditionally feminine must mean you're not actually a woman and you're some third category that you've invented. It's not a real thing, and you shouldn't be confusing young impressionable children with it, and certainly not doing so in the name of our community, the LGBT community, because I'll, I'll just let you in on a little secret here, honey. Parents are not going to like this, and you're going to just lead this kind of thing is already and will only continue as it becomes more widespread. And it's hard to say how widespread it is. We just see these viral videos, but it's certainly not not existent with the sheer number of these videos. It is only going to lead to backlash to the whole community and backsliding in our acceptance. And that's why I really, I mean, I, I don't like it on its merits, but I, I even think self-interestedly, it's just a really bad idea and a bad approach. Like, do whatever you want in your life, but just don't bring it into the classroom, especially not as young as preschool. My God. Up next, this one is uh, even more ridiculous somehow. One of my favorite teachable moments I've had as an educator came from students disrespecting pronouns. Now let me explain. Pronouns are a delicate art, especially in public school systems. So what I've always done in school and at after school programs is during introductions I always give mine and in my little list of things I want to know I say you may specify your pronouns you can also find me after just so no one is forced and no one makes a big deal out of it it's really more for parents than students and it's always a mixed bag generally speaking people just say them or don't say them and don't make a production but you know once once a group you'll get somebody making some kind of joke and this is where it gets teachable one I have a good sense of who's joking, but I don't know for sure. So what am I gonna do? Say to a class of kids, okay, good one, about a kid's actual name and pronouns? No. I take every single student at face value and I just immediately respect whatever they say. And I will call them that name and pronouns as long as they let me. So the kid who's chuckling and going, uh, he, him, and I wanna go by T-Rex. <laughs> He's T-Rex for the rest of the year. One of two things happens when I do this. One, usually, is what happens, which is, at some point, it starts following them to their other classes, and it actually starts being a joke against them, they find, that they don't have control over this nickname anymore. And so they just ask me, you know, actually, can I just, can I just go by Tyler, he, him? And I say, yes, of course. And the nickname fizzles. And they learn to just not make the joke. They aren't better people, but I take it as a win. The second one is much rarer, but is my favorite. It's happened twice. They start to really like the nickname. They like being T-Rex. It makes them feel special. It's something about their personality. Usually, you know, they throw out a name because they're, they're funny or whatever. And now the world sees them as this funny guy. And they saw how easy it was for me to just accept it. 
even if I thought it was ridiculous, even if I didn't understand it, I didn't have to make a joke. I could just accept it. So even though it was a little more buttoned up than some of the other ones, I actually somehow found this one more disturbing. It's actually ridiculous for an adult, let alone a teacher, to simply accept whatever a child tells them at face value. If a kid comes to you and tells you their pronouns are pumpkin slash spice, it's not your job to affirm them and actually try to somehow use those when referring to them. It's your job to tell the kid that those aren't pronouns and that they're being silly. Also, no one should accept things that don't make sense to them or that they don't understand. That's not exactly practicing critical thinking or intellectual honesty. It's just going along with the path of least resistance to avoid conflict. And it's definitely not a teacher's job to play mind games or trick or embarrass students into embracing a certain view of gender and pronouns. Couldn't you just stick to teaching your subject? Teachers like this, honestly, they make me worried to be a parent. I know there's so many good teachers out there and that these are just hopefully fringe internet crazies, but like, I, how do I make sure that these people don't end up teaching my kids one day? I, I really want to know. All right, guys, I don't really think I can handle any more LGBT TikToks in one sitting without incurring permanent brain damage. So let me know what you thought of those in the comments. I do do this, I mean, but I will be honest, it can be draining and a little bit soul crushing. So I hope you appreciate me for just just the, the sacrifice I'm making. Some people, you know, roof houses, they build ditches, but I, I fade into the, the, perilous, the perilous territory of alphabet TikTok. So who are the real heroes in society? All right, guys, thanks so much for tuning in for my conversation with Colin and joining me as we lost some brain cells reacting to those TikToks. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like, comment, yada, yada, yada. And hopefully I'll see you all again next week.